Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Happy, hot. This feels like our first real summer Sunday. That's nice. We're, uh, I won't go too long today because I think I'll get too sweaty to hold this thing. So we'll, we'll get going. You guys can open up the text for today is in Luke 6. It's going to be 6 verse 12. So turn there with me in your Bibles. I'm going to pray as you guys find your way there. Jesus, thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you that you always show up, that you meet us, for your kindness towards us. I pray this morning, God, that you would just, even in the middle of heat or in the middle of distraction, draw our attention to you. Draw our attention to whatever you want to say. That we right now, Holy Spirit, we just prepare our hearts to receive from you to hear whatever you have. We're listening to you, God, just come alive with your word this morning. In your name, amen. amen. Luke 6, starting in verse 12. It says, one of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets." It's a good chunk of text for this morning, but where we start is just with that very first verse, verse 12. We see Jesus taking this time with the Father before he goes and picks the 12 apostles. We see Jesus spending time with the Father before he makes a big decision. There's actually, our culture right now is one of the least decisive in history. It's one of those ones where there's so many choices out there, so much information out there that we aren't sure where to go, how to give a yes because you could be saying no to something good. 
There's a psychologist named Barry Schwartz, and he coined the phrase the paradox of choice to describe the findings that while increased choice does allow us to achieve better results, it also leads to greater anxiety for people, to indecision, paralysis, and dissatisfaction. There's a quote from him that says this, should come up on a slide. Rather than empowering us to make better choices, our virtually unlimited access to information often leads to greater fear of making the wrong decision, which in turn leads us to spinning our wheels in a seemingly inescapable purgatory of analysis paralysis, all the while getting nowhere. Another term for this is decision paralysis. He used the word there. It's that we look at the vast options and we say, I can't move because I might miss out on one of those options. How can we possibly ever make a good decision? For any of you in here that has a decision to make or feels like there's something weighing on you, how can you ever weigh all of the options and decide correctly? Is that the destiny for the people of God to try to weigh the options? to try to figure out the path of least resistance. When we look at Jesus in this verse 12, I think he's teaching us a much, a much simpler way. He's not teaching us a new system for decision making. He's not teaching us a new system for how we can arrive at the right conclusion. But he's saying instead that decisions are relational. That the way that we choose our path, the way that we pick, okay, where are we going next, is that we don't do it on our own that it's relational rather than systemic. It's not how do I make a decision, it's with who am I making a decision. Jesus is again challenging this preconceived idea of how the world works, this preconceived idea that we have to have a formula to figure out what to do, and he's coming with his simplicity and instead he's showing us that he wants to relate to us. Jesus in verse 12, before he chooses, and it's a big decision, to choose the 12 apostles who will set forth this new kingdom, it says, one of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Only Luke draws attention to this fact that Jesus prayed before the choosing of the 12. He also places this account very intentionally prior to the blessing and woes that we'll look at in a little bit, setting this groundwork for how we approach the kingdom of God. So how does Jesus make decisions? He makes them in relationship with the Father. Choosing the 12 was big. But the text doesn't say that he did it by a process of elimination or by taking what he knew of each man and picking the best candidate based off his knowledge, but it says he went away and he prayed. And he asked God for wisdom. He asked God for those names and he came back after listening and after waiting, after a, a counter for the night with the Father. And he trusted, Jesus, he trusted God completely for that wisdom even if it didn't make sense. And he walks away and he comes and he chooses the 12. The funny thing about the 12 is that if we were to look at it and say, okay, are these the, the best names that Jesus could have chosen to make up his apostles? I think Luke is even hinting us into that's arguable, that these are the best guys. <laughs> He's like, one of them ended up being a traitor. There's the zealot guy. You guys know some of these guys. They're not like cream of the crop men, all of them. But Jesus picked them in full confidence because he'd heard from the Father. He didn't have to make a rational decision. He had to make a relational decision that honored God, that moved in step with obedience. And that's a really beautiful thing about where we get to live. We get to live in relationship with the Father. We get to live in this space where he's speaking to us, where we're not on this journey just trying to figure out, okay, what's the best move and how do I get to the best place? We get to look at him and spend time with him. 
we get to come to him and we get to sit with Jesus and say, oh, even if my specific question isn't answered or I don't even know what to do when I leave here, I met with you. And because of that, I have wisdom. And I think that's an important question for us this morning. And I think most of us in this church would say yes, but I want us to think about it again. Is does God still speak? Does he speak to us like he spoke to Jesus? If you go and you get away with the Father, will he speak to you? I believe yes, that God is speaking, he's moving, he wants relationship with you specifically. That you have ideas, you have dreams, you have imagination that he wants to bring alive in you, but you gotta get close to him for that to come alive. It's not this, oh, let me give God X and he'll give me back Y. It's not like a grocery checkout line, hey, how are you, good, how are you? You know how it's gonna go. When you go to the Father, you bear yourself to him. You open yourself up to whatever he wants to do. And it's not a transactional conversation. It's a relational conversation where you come and you sit with him and you say, do whatever you wanna do. Show me whatever you wanna say. Because if I come and I say, okay, God, I have one question, and I don't hear anything and I walk away, I missed out. I missed out on what he actually wanted to do, on what he wanted to speak to me. Making decisions in relationship through prayer enables us to partner with what Jesus is doing. We see the disciples even later come to Jesus and they say, teach us to pray. That's because they'd watched Jesus do this so many times. <laughs> they'd watched him get away with the Father, come back and have wisdom that's like, that doesn't really make sense, but that worked. Like the world is the way that he just said it was gonna be. Things are working the way that he received from the Father. So Jesus, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to do it. And so what Jesus does is he shows people that when you pray, you are inviting God to come and tell you whatever he wants to do. You're reminding yourself, your kingdom come, your will be done. That the impossible is possible. Making decisions in relationship with Jesus, in relationship with the Father, allows us to see the kingdom come. There's a quote uh, from Jamie Winship. He actually spoke here once a while back. If you haven't heard it, go listen. Pretty fun. Um. The quote says this, the enemy's goal is to limit and narrow our thinking so that we can't see anything new but continue to tell ourselves why things cannot or will not work. We have an enemy who daily says to us, here's why that is not going to work. Plenty of other people will tell us the same thing. When we pray, God tells us how things do work and we need to be able to hear him above the voices that tell us how things don't. Prayer is this place, up and out of ourselves, where nothing is impossible. That is what kingdom relationship does. It gets us outside of ourselves. It gets us outside of the things. If we were to sit down and say, okay, what's my pros and cons list? What are the limits? Jesus doesn't want any of that. He wants to bring you to himself and show you what is possible with him, which is anything. But maybe your question at this point is, okay, but how? The, the practicality of it, how do we make relational decisions with the Father? And that's the really beautiful thing about prayer, and also maybe challenging for some of us sometimes, is that it's not a magic eight ball. I don't come to the Lord and say, what, okay, yes or no, and you're gonna give me one. It's relationship. We speak to the Father like we would to our friend. We talk to him, we talk through our problems, we tell him the truth about what we're feeling. We bring him our desires, we bring him, say you have a decision of, okay, should I go to this school or that school? We come to him with the decision, but we invite him to speak what he wants to speak. Maybe he has a different school altogether, 
Maybe he has no school. Maybe he has something you hadn't even dreamt of. We have to be able to open ourselves to what he wants to speak. We have to be able to come to Jesus and make a relational decision. There's often times where we'll come to the Father and he'll remind us of things that he's already spoken, a word that he's already given you, a scripture that you've already read, and it's like, oh, actually the direction is me being obedient to what he's already said. Like maybe I'm not hearing anything new because he has already spoken and I need to listen and walk in what he's saying. Do we have that kind of trust in Jesus when we navigate the small and the big decisions of our life? That relationship with him is enough that I don't have to know an end game. I don't have to know where it's even gonna take me, but if Jesus spoke it, I will believe it. We get to give our yes without knowing exactly where it's gonna take us. That when things are unsure, we get to be like Peter in chapter six, where he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, there's no one like you. And I'm kind of, after talking about not getting systematic, I'm a little bit hesitant to get super practical here, of like, how do we do this? But there is definitely ways to pray. We talk about listening here a lot. When we talk about listening, it's not, I know maybe that's new for some people here. It's not something mystical. It's not like there's not something like incantation that you have to do to be able to hear from God. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is alive in you, and he's speaking to you. The voice of God is speaking to you. So all that listening is, is just stopping, creating space to say, Jesus, speak to me. And with open hands to listen, create space to say, Jesus, what do you think about this? And you might get a thought that comes to your mind or a picture that comes to your mind, and you might wanna be quick to dismiss that thing, but don't. Because what we believe is that Jesus is alive, and when we ask him to speak, he will. So if you have a thought that comes to you, sift it with scripture and sift it with him, but don't discount it like it's not his voice, because I promise he's speaking to you. That he's able to speak in any place, to any person, in any scenario. The other amazing tool that we have when we're talking about listening to God is the scriptures. We have his word from the very beginning of time telling us what the world was meant to look like what we look like, what our true identity is, who he is. We come here to say, God, who are you? So if we want wisdom, we're like, I'm not sure where to find it, come to the scriptures. If you feel like your mind is cluttered, and like, oh, I can't decide anything, I don't know where to go, I, I feel like tension, come to the scriptures. Lay down your distraction and just come and, and sit with it. Sit with the scriptures and read the word of God. And not for the purpose of, okay, let, let me like find an answer. It's not an answer book. Again, it's relational. We come and we wanna meet with Jesus. So if you're feeling any contention in that place, come and be in the scriptures. It's pretty, pretty simple stuff, but I think too, even today, that God's inviting us. If you're one of those people that you're like, I have a decision, there's so much tension, that he invites you to just breathe. Breathe in, breathe out, and know that you have a good father who cares for you. That you have a good father who it's not like, oh, but if I go this way and I make the wrong decision, I've messed everything up. No, you're listening to him, you're walking with him, he's caring for you, and he's good enough, he's good enough to stop you when you need to stop, and to speak when you need to be spoken to. To like Paul and Acts, to be, able, to be able to come and say, oh, you're going this way, but stop, we're gonna move this way. Trust that you have a good father who will speak to you, and I think there's a lot of spaces where we don't, as people of God, have to be paralyzed by decision. We get to enjoy his presence. We get to host his presence. We get to not be like the rest of culture and say, I can't move, but we get to just keep moving after him. 
we get to give our yes moment by moment and day by day. And that's what Jesus is doing is setting, put, showing us this kind of relationship, this kind of trusting relationship, is he's showing us what the kind of people who can receive a heaven on earth reality. And that's where the text goes next. Because in verse 17, we see Jesus come down with his newly chosen disciples. There's uh, one commentary that I read, and it talks about the level place where Jesus came. And it said that it means that he was making himself easy to reach. He was making himself accessible. And I love that about him. Jesus does make himself so easy to reach. Even as we talk about listening and talking to God, he is accessible, he is near. He wants to meet those who hunger and thirst for him. And it's in this place of access that we see heaven come. Verse 18 says, these people had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Jesus is showing what it looks like for the kingdom to come. These people are witnessing heaven touching earth. They're witnessing what it looks like because of Jesus' obedience to the Father, because of his listening to the Holy Spirit, they get to see what the kingdom is about. And from this place of exhibiting what the kingdom looks like, of exhibiting what true reality looks like, we, he teaches. He teaches the people, and that's where we see the blessings and the woes that we'll see coming up in the text. This language of blessing should draw us back it should draw us back to Eden with God's original intent for creation, that God wanted to bless all of creation. He created humans to be the caretakers of this blessing, of his flourishing, of his life. He wanted them to eat from all the trees in the garden, to be blessed, to flourish, to grow. And the woes should also draw us back to that same place, to the curse that sin brought on humanity, where we decided to take from another tree instead. That tree would have us take our own abundance. It would have us take for ourselves what goodness looks like, a shortcut to formulate our own good future, to make our decisions outside of relationship. Jesus' teaching here is taking us back so that we might trust him in what he's about to say next, that we might trust him in where he's going. He's showing us what kind of people will inherit heaven and earth. The ones who receive the blessing for yours is the kingdom of God. He's contrasting these people with another group, those who will receive the woes. Let's take a quick look at that contrast. I think I have a slide with the two side by side. So you can see with the blessings and the woes that they're parallel to each other. Blessed are you who are poor, but woe to you who are rich, and on and on down the line. We see characteristics of those who will inherit the kingdom, and then we see those who will not, and the differences between them. But the question to ask is, are these simply literal characteristics? Does it mean that if I'm not poor, I should seek to give away my money so that I can be poor? Because that's the only way I'll inherit the kingdom. Does it mean that if I'm not hungry for food that I should try to be? I should probably take a few days off and just get hungry. Or is this saying something more than that? I would argue yes. It doesn't discount the literal interpretation that God will satisfy those who are literally hungry, that the justice of the kingdom of God means that there are no poor, no hungry, there's no one weeping. That's what the kingdom does. But also, what Jesus is doing here is he's speaking to the heart of the kingdom of God. The place that Jesus often uncovers is the heart and the intention of people. And I think that is mostly what he's doing here again. Matthew 5 hints us into this as well when he gives a similar teaching but, and he uses the same characteristics, but instead the connotation is for the inner man, the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
And I mean, think about the scene that we're in here, right? We just saw the kingdom on display. Jesus has healed people who've come to him. Power is on display. My guess, if you came with some kind of injury or some lifelong infirmity and you got healed, you're happy. You're joyful. You're laughing. And I don't think that Jesus looks at those people and says, oh, yours won't be the kingdom of God because you don't laugh here. That's not okay. No, there's great joy in the presence of God when he moves. I think what Jesus is doing here is that he's juxtaposing these two, showing what type of person will be able to receive his upside-down kingdom. The first group, the hungry, the weeping, the hated, these are those who are dissatisfied with the world as it is. These are the people who are, they want God to come. They long for what he's going to do. They long for what God could give them. They want to see him redeem the world for heaven to come. It's the privileges and the implications of being a disciple of what it means to be a true disciple, because it's the hungry ones who will ask for heaven to come, that will see it. And the second group that we see, the group that's receiving the woes, is the group that is, they're satisfied, right? They're rich, they're comfortable, they have what they need, but they're satisfied in the world. They're satisfied in all the things that the world has to offer. They've chosen that tree, the one that can create abundance for yourself. And they've said, no, I can find it on my own. No, I can create it for myself. They found it in riches and food and being liked by the right people. They've seen everything that the world displays and said, yeah, that's enough. That's enough for me. They want nothing more and there's no need to cry out. There's no need to say, God, break in. I want to see a move. I want to see heaven come because they say, no, I've found my heaven here already. I have found, I've decided that I'm a great king for myself and I don't need King Jesus. I think these questions are for us this morning too. Are we satisfied with things as they are? Are we satisfied to look around the world and say, yeah, this is good enough? Do you look around and think there isn't a need for a move of God? The world's pretty great. Do you prefer your individualistic comfort or creating your own path to abundance over heaven come, whatever it may look like? This is the warning that Jesus gives with the blessing and the woes. Not just the tangible promise of future hope, but he stirs a holy discontent in people. Holy discontent can be defined as a deep dissatisfaction with the low state of our faith, the church, and the culture. This isn't a grumbling or like an ability to fault find. It's the spirit of God speaking to his people and saying this is not the way it's supposed to be. Because wherever sin shows up, it should stir discontent in the people of God. Because we can see it and say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. The way of Jesus doesn't look like that. We can see injustice and we can be stirred up by God to say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We see apathy in ourselves and we say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way that God made it to be. This stirring of the spirit speaks that you were made to partner in heaven on earth, nothing less. Now what around you, you get to look and say, what is calling for that partnership? Uh, Mark Sayers wrote a book, it's his second one. The, his first was Disappearing Church, and then he wrote Reappearing Church, a lot more fun. And it focuses on renewal. It's the renewal, this the beginning of this move of God, this, that Jesus as king would awaken again this kingdom reality for the church and the people and the world, that we would become partners and not bystanders. And he talks about holy discontent in this book, and he calls it his phase one in the renewal process. But he speaks of it like this. Here, in holy discontent, 
The dismay of the hunger for something better and the reality which we are living coalesces from frustration or lament into a holy discontent. Our desires begin to align with God's desires to renew the world. We become discontent with the state of the world, perceiving its injustices, sinfulness, brokenness, and lostness. Its failings become painfully real to us. Often this is facilitated by a personal or corporate crisis, which brings our lives into a new light. We become discontent with the state of the church, but not in a nitpicking sense. Instead, we experience genuine hunger for the church to be released to its full potential and power in our broken world. These discontents then ferment into a deep dissatisfaction with the state of our own lives and the level of our own faith. No longer pointing our accusations outward, we realize our own inadequacy, grasping that change must begin with us. Instead of falling into self-condemnation or paralysis, we cry out to God to change us, to start his renewal in our hearts. It's this type of dissatisfaction that raises up a holy people that causes us to look at ourselves and say, no, God, I want more. I know there's more of you. I'm not content to be apathetic. I'm not content to just cruise through this life. I wanna see you, God. That not a moment would go by with we're, when we're so satisfied with the world that we don't recognize our deep need for him because we have a deep need for him. And the kingdom that Jesus exhibits this one of signs and wonders of seeing the impossible, it's defined by a people that are that hungry, that are that hungry to see him move. A people committed to holiness, that we don't let the pleasures of the world lull us to sleep, but we recognize that Jesus wants to show up in every situation. A people that have no fear of man, because rejection for the sake of the Son of Man is pure joy. And it's important to be content in all seasons because I'm near him, but that's a very different thing than being content with the world and all it has to offer. That's saying, oh, I'm content to just be here in the world. No, we need to be hungry for him. And that's the distinction between the blessings and the woes. Where do you find your abundance? In who do you find your abundance? Is it in Jesus? Is it in his way? And I wanna come back full circle the invitation for us today. Because I believe that all of you in this room who are called by the name of Jesus, who believe on his name, who know him, you are blessed ones. He has called you blessed. He has called you his, his children. And that we've given our allegiance to him means that we have a new identity that Jesus is reminding us of in this passage. The first is that you make decisions in relationship, like we talked about. Prayer is your default. You're not transactional in your questions, you're not, but you're being after the Lord that you would search for him and that he would search you out. The beauty that God speaks of is that there's actual dialogue available to you, to us. Listen, have someone listen for you. That's the beauty of doing this in community is that we have people who can point us to relationship. But what we do as children of God is we give him our full attention. The second thing about who we are is that we are people who long for heaven on earth with a holy discontent. The Holy Spirit alive in you means that you have eyes to see reality as it is. That you have the ability to partner in the imagination and the thoughts of God. That you have the ability to go to your home, out into our city, and see something and say, oh God, give me your imagination for this. To get ideas that maybe no one else could have had, but he's spurring them in you, that you would come and you would let that discontent in you stir, oh, we're actually gonna see heaven come here. I'm gonna partner with you, Jesus, and I'm gonna see heaven come here. 
we step back into our role as partners and we ask for heaven solutions. The third thing about who we are is we're not afraid. These two first dimensions of your identity as a child of God from this passage, they don't leave any room to be afraid. If your decisions are made in relationship, you're not crippled by any fear that you might, oh, make the wrong one, or what if I don't succeed down the line? No, we get to trust him and walk daily in trust with him that our future in Jesus is sure. If you're living with a, lo like a longing for heaven on earth with this holy discontent, you shift from a place of fearing what people think or fearing what could happen to you, and you walk into the world with great boldness because you say, oh, the greatest thing I could fear is death, and with Jesus, death, where is your sting? Anytime that you feel afraid, it's an invitation to ask the Holy Spirit to remind you who you are. Anytime you look forward and you feel afraid, we get to ask him, Jesus, where are you going? I wanna go with you to confess your fear and let him show you again what is true. And so there's something I wanna do today before we take communion. If you guys can bear with the heat just a little bit longer with me. I wanna take some time and listen to do what we just talked about, to let questions that we ask the Lord spur us into a time of listening for our identity in him. So if you feel comfortable, I'd invite you to close your eyes. Just less distraction is better. You can open your hands or however you feel comfortable. The really cool thing about receiving from the Lord is that we don't need background music. We don't need to be in the right setting. We don't need to even be by ourselves. We can receive from him anytime, anywhere. So we're gonna ask him some questions and you're gonna listen. As you hear from him, I invite you to remember, to write it down, to hear what he speaks. So Jesus, we're listening to you. Ask him, Jesus, is there any false identity that I am believing? Are there lies about who I am or what the world is like that I've accepted? Take note of whatever he's bringing to mind, whatever lie has come up, or even if it's a word that you're like, that word doesn't quite make sense in context, write it down anyway. Continue to ask him. Take whatever you just heard. Take whatever that false identity was or that lie that you've been believing was and ask him again, Jesus, what do you do with that false identity? Take that false identity and that lie, and I want you to picture Jesus in your mind and ask him, what do you do with this false identity? Picture handing this identity over to him. You would see Jesus in your mind and hand him the lie that you've been believing. Hand him the identity that you've been believing. Jesus, what do you do with that false identity? Whatever you see him doing with it, trust him that it's done. That thing is not true of you. That lie is not true. And then lastly, just wanna come and we wanna ask Jesus, who do you say that I am? Is 
and listening for what God speaks, it's that simple. He would come and he'd meet you in those quiet places. He'll meet you in those questions that even right now, whatever lie that he took away, that he'd replace it with what is true about you, with your identity. Every time that Jesus identifies a lie, he actually wants to give you something that's true about you that you can hold on to instead. And if you don't feel like you heard anything on that last question, I have a few verses here that Jesus says are true of us. In 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. John 15, 15 says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are a child of his kingdom of light. Those who call the name of Jesus are friends of God, crafted by him, prepared for kingdom work. This is what is true about you. And we've got to believe it. If we're going to go out and be a people unafraid, we have to trust what he says about us. So if you have moments this week or wherever you're going where you're like, I'm not sure, go through, listen to him again, ask him again, God, what lies am I believing? But God, what do you say about me? And replace lies with his truth. Go to the scriptures and see what he says about you. Because as we go out and we make decisions and we look at the world, at the people in it, we get to do so from security in the Father. Knowing that he goes before us, that he has made us overcomers, and so my prayer is that we would just be awake to his love, consumed by his goodness, and get to see him move more. If you guys stand with me, let's take communion. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.